Well, good evening, and let me extend my welcome to you for being here at our GO conference. Very honored that you would take the time to be here. Several years ago, I was listening to a Desiring God conference, and in that conference, uh, John Piper did a biographical study of a great missionary. I later found out that he had done five or six of those over the years, and so I downloaded all of them and listened to them very carefully, and I can tell you few things have inspired me and moved me more than to hear him tell the story of these great men and women that have uh, trusted the Lord to go to very difficult places and to spend their lives there. And so I begin to think, what if you were to take the life of a great missionary and then also find a biblical text that uh, serves well as an illustration of that life? And so over the years, I've uh, gone through the uh, exercise and the discipline of doing that. And of all the different missionaries that I have read about and studied, none has shaped and impacted my life more than the missionary Jim Elliott. And so I want you to take your Bible this evening and join me in Psalm 96, one of the great, great missionary psalms. And what we're going to do is walk through these 13 verses in an expository manner but also look at the life of Jim Elliott, his writings, uh, his journaling, his life. And the title I've given to our study this evening is, Let All the Nations Give God Glory, a passion on display in the life and martyrdom of missionary Jim Elliott. Psalm 96, a great, great missionary song. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The greatness of a person's life is not measured by its longevity. It is measured by its quality. If that is true, and I believe that it is, then missionary Jim Elliott lived a great, great life, though it was a very brief life. 
You see, Jim Elliott, along with his four companions among the Aka Indians, sought to extend the glory of God among the nations, only to see his life brought to an all-too-soon end at the tender age of 29. I find it interesting that another great missionary also only lived to be 29, the missionary David Brainerd, and yet no one probably influenced the modern missionary movement more than David Brainerd back in those days and Jim Elliott in the prior century. And I would argue very strongly today that though their lives were brief and cut off, one by illness, the other by martyrdom, I would argue that their lives were not a loss. In fact, none of the lives that we will look at this evening were a loss. But on the contrary, more nations were added to give God glory because of their faithful and radical devotion to the God who in verse 4 is described as great and greatly to be praised. James Boyce, who for many years served as pastor of the 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, says of Psalm 96, it is a joyful hymn to the God of Israel as king, and it is an invitation to the nations of the world to join Israel in praising him. But... It is also a prophecy of a future day when God will judge the entire world in righteousness. And it is the theology that you find embedded in this psalm that drove Jim Elliott to give his life as a missionary and to inspire him to pray a fascinating short prayer, Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have you asked God to use your life in such a significant way that you indeed would be a dangerous individual? Oh, not dangerous to the common, normal, everyday person, but dangerous to Satan, dangerous to the powers of darkness. Might it be that when the demons see you coming, they might tremble because God's hand is so very evident upon your life? You see, Jim Elliott inspires me because he was not going to be satisfied with a shallow, impotent, comfortable, convenient, and yes, useless kind of Christianity. No, for Jim Elliott, a wasted life was not an option. Now, as we walk through this psalm, I want you to see four major movements that will guide us and direct us as we see the nations coming to worship the God who is great and greatly to be praised. And what we see in this text is going to inform us what God desires and expects of us. But also, I want us to see how this particular psalm so well is reflected in the life of this faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note with me then, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, that the Bible teaches us God desires that the nations praise him. It begins with the word sing in verses 1 and 2, appearing three times. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Each time you see the word Lord in this psalm, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It occurs no less than 11 times in this psalm. And we see down in verse 11 that all of the earth is invited to praise him. Now, three aspects are no 
noted in these first three verses concerning the desire of God that the nations praise him. First of all, as we just read, we should sing a new song. Three times we are called to sing to the Lord in verse 1 and verse 2. Furthermore, it's a very particular song that we sing. We sing a new song to the Lord. We learn in verse 2, it is the new song, the, the good news of salvation and a song that we are to sing from day to day. Now, as you examine the song, it looks in two directions. First of all, it's looking back, no doubt, uh, to God's salvation and deliverance of the Hebrew people during the Exodus experience. But it is also the case that, as James Boyce wisely said, this song is prophetic. And it is looking forward to that ultimate day of salvation when Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross and rise from the dead. In fact, John the Apostle, I believe was meditating and reflecting upon Psalm 96 when he penned a portion of the glorious fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. Because look at what you read there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and verse 10. And, that is the nations, they sang what? A new song, saying... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Where, John? Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The Bible promises that the new song of salvation will be sung by the nations. But secondly... We should also proclaim his salvation. Verse 2, the three imperatives, and they are all imperatives, the three imperatives seen are now paralleled by three additional imperatives in verse 2 and verse 3. The word bless, the word tell or proclaim, and the word declare. So singing to the Lord, we bless his name. We honor and give glory to the name of Yahweh. And we do this, the text says, as we tell of his salvation from day to day. The idea is that not a day goes by, uh, not a moment passes that our hearts and minds and mouths are not occupied with the wonder of his salvation. So we sing a new song. We proclaim his salvation, but thirdly, we should also declare his glory. You see, the new song of verse 1 and the good news of verse 2 of the Lord's salvation demand a universal and worldwide declaration. The glory of this God must be declared among the nations and his marvelous works, the New American Standard, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Uh, I would commend to you reading Eugene Peterson's The Message. It is a paraphrase. I would never preach from it, but I like the way that he sometimes words things. And listen to how he paraphrases these verses here. Shout the news of his victory from sea to sea. Take the news of his glory to the lost, news of his wonders to one and all. And this was the passion that you see in the life of a man by the name of Philip James Elliot. Let's just do a little biography, if we might. He was born in 1926 in Portland, Oregon, and God blessed him with a father who was an itinerant evangelist. And while his father was not an educated man, Fred Elliot's love 
and his devotion and his commitment to Christ would significantly shape and inspire the life of his son. In fact, listen to what he says about his father in a letter that he wrote to Elizabeth, his future wife, whom he would refer to as Betty. And I quote, Betty, I blush to think of things I have said as if I knew something about what Scripture teaches. I know nothing. My father's religion is of a sort which I have seen nowhere else. Oh, his theology is wholly undeveloped, but so real and practical a thing that it shatters every system of doctrine I have seen. And I love this statement. He cannot define theism, but he knows God. We've had happy times together, and I cannot estimate what enrichment a few months working with him might do for me, both practically and spiritually. And then later in his journal, he would write this about his father. When I think of how far he has gone into the secret riches of the father's purposes in Christ, I am shamed to silence. Oh, Lord, let me learn tenderness and silence in my spirit, fruits of thy knowledge. Burn, burden, and break me, Lord. If you study his life, you discover that Jim Elliott's home was often visited by missionaries. And you also learn at about the age of eight is when he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. And it was as a teenager that Jim Elliott began to think and dream of being a missionary. Already in his heart as a young teen, he was thinking of going among the nations. And I would just simply say to all of you here tonight, it's never too young to make that kind of decision. I've seen many, many wonderful missionaries who determine, even as an older adolescent, but then in their early teen years, I believe God would have me give my life to missions, and they stay true to that commitment that they made at a very tender age. Uh, Jim Elliott, by the way, was a fine athlete, but he basically says he engaged in sports because he wanted to strengthen and toughen his body for the rigors of the mission field. And after he graduated from high school, he would enroll at Wheaton College in 1948. Again, he joined the wrestling team to strengthen his body for the rigors of the mission field. He began to speak to youth groups, and it was at that time he began journaling in his junior year, and he met his future wife, Elizabeth, whom he again called Betty. And I'll just say this, he only journaled for about five or six years, but I praise God that he did, and I thank God that those journals have been preserved. In June of 1950, at the age of 24, he began to focus very specifically on a particular people group that he believed God was leading him to go and evangelize. It was a remote, feared tribe in Ecuador known as the Wadani tribe, or as we often refer to them today as the Aka Indians. And two different pieces from his diary, from his journal, capture, I think, what God placed in his heart. And it's amazing how clearly it echoes Psalm 96 and verse 1. Listen to what he wrote. 
Surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the statement of his. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye and from around, come over and help us. And even the call from the damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while quenches the Wadani perish. In essence, he was saying, Lord, why should I? How can I stay? I can't. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses, and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of money. And God has his rightful way of dealing with those who have yielded to the spirit of Laodicea. And then in his journal dated July the 26th, 1952, and here's where you see Psalm 96 so clearly. Oh, for a faith that seems. Lord God, give me a faith that will take sufficient quiver out of me so that I may sing over the Akas. Father, I want to sing. The Bible teaches us that God desires that the nations would praise him. Number two. God desires that the nations would fear him, verse 4, 5, and 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. It is the Lord who made the heavens. The splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I believe a right theology of God will lead to a healthy reverence, even a fear and awe of him. When you really understand who you are as a sinner and who God is as the sovereign, holy, righteous Lord of the universe, you're not going to be flippant and trite with him. Uh, you're not going to call him the man upstairs. You're not going to refer to him as your buddy or your pal. You won't insult him by saying, well, you know, J.C. is my homeboy. No, you will not dishonor him in any of those kind of ways. No, you will recognize the God that has saved me is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, righteous, just, sovereign of the universe. As verse 13 says, he is coming to judge the earth and the world with righteousness. And yet God desires the nations fear him in a very particular and even reverential kind of a way. First of all, we should fear him because he is a great God. Indeed, our text says our God is a great God and greatly. The NIV says he is most worthy to be praised. He is to be feared, the Bible says, above all the other gods. Why? It's very simple. The gods of the peoples are idols. The gods of the peoples are false gods. They're imposters. They're no gods at all. And tragically, there are thousands and thousands, no, millions and millions of these false gods scattered all around the world, enslaving millions and millions to false idols and false systems of religion that are nothing less than a highway, an expressway to hell. No, the psalmist says the Lord is great and they are not. He saves and they only damn. 
The Lord is really something and they are really nothing. The Lord made everything and they have not made a thing. We fear him because he is a great God. But we also fear him because he is a glorious God. Four marvelous affirmations are made of the great redeemer and creator God in verse 6. And these are truths that the psalmist says the nations must know. Look at them. Honor or splendor is before him, literally radiating out from his person. Majesty is before him, flooding forth from him. Strength is found in his sanctuary, his royal residency. And beauty is found in his sanctuary in his kingly court. Standing, as I like to say, like, like marvelous throne room attendants. Splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty bear witness to the God who is awesome and like no other God. And it is this truth that so gripped the soul and the heart of this man named Jim Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, writing of her husband, simply said, Jim's aim was to simply know God. And Jim Elliot himself would write in his journal, Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. You see, Jim Elliot saw our God for who he is and a holy reverence and a holy fear attended him while he was at Wheaton. And it was that sense of who God is that drove him to go and give his life among the Aka Indians. Listen to him pray. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life and I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. And then listen to this. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And then listen to him in his journal dated July the 15th, 1948. And I would urge those of you that have studied history to pick up on the, the language that he uses in very tender fashion that comes from the church fathers and also the medieval mystics. Listen to what he writes. How like Orpha I am. Of course, we know Orpha was the Moabitess who returned back to her people and did not go with Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem. How like Orpha I am, prone to kiss, to display full devotion and then turn away. How unlike Ruth, cleaving and refusing to part except at death. Eternal lover, make thou thyself inseparable from my unstable soul. Be thou the object bright and fair to fill and satisfy the heart. My hope to meet thee in the air and nevermore from thee depart. Again from his journal, since the great need of my heavenly father tonight, I have feelings of what Dr. Jarsman, a philosophy professor at Wheaton, calls the autonomous man in another context. Now, listen to what he writes here. These are not normal words from a normal human being. I do not feel needy enough. Sufficiency in myself is a persistent thought, though I try to judge it. Lord Jesus, tender lover of this brute soul, wilt thou make me weak? I long to understand thy sufficiency and my inadequacy. How can I sense this except an experience? So, Lord, 
Thou knowest what I'm able to bear. Listen now. Send trouble that I might know peace. Send anxiety that I might know rest in thee. Send hard things that I may learn to rely on thy dissolving them. And then he acknowledges strange askings. And I do not know what I speak, but my desire is toward thee. Anything that will intensify and make me tender, Savior, I desire to be like thee. You know this. Again, wonderful season of intercession tonight. At thy right hand are pleasure, Psalm 1611. Pray a strange prayer today, and it is a strange prayer. I coveted with my father that he would do either of two things, either glorify himself to the utmost in me or slay me. By his grace, I shall not have his second best. For he heard me, I believe, so that now I have nothing to look forward to but a life of sacrificial sonship. That's how thy Savior was glorified, my soul. Our heaven soon, perhaps tomorrow, what a prospect. And let me quickly add before I continue, Jim Elliott did not seek a martyr's death, but he did not run from it either. November the 1st, 1948, son of man, I feel it would be best if I should be taken now to thy throne. I dread causing thee shame at thy appearing. And then again, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord, have it all. Pour out my life as an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. And again, I confess his words sound very, very strange to a culture that is comfortable and convenient with its Christianity. In fact, I have preached this message before among just regular, normal local churches, and I've had people come up to me and say, Jim Elliott was crazy. Jim Elliott needed to be in counseling. How could anyone pray prayers like he prayed Prayers And my response was, well, maybe he knew God better than we do. Yes, God desires that the nations praise him. God desires that the nations would fear him. But number three, God desires that the nations would worship him, verses 7 through 9. Warren Wiersbe, who pastored many years at the Moody Church in Chicago, says, praise means looking up, but worship means bowing down. In other words, worship means to acknowledge and ascribe to God his worth and his value as we humble ourselves before him and submit our will and our life to his will. Three times in this third stanza, you see the word ascribed. You see it, verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due 
his name. And so it is the families of the earth, the families of the nations that are to come and give God the glory that is due his name. Uh, scholars of the Psalms have noted that you almost have these exact same words in an earlier Psalm, Psalm 29. Interestingly, in Psalm 29, it is the angels who are giving God glory. But here in Psalm 96, it is the nation's who are giving God glory. Now, in what way are we to give him glory? Well, number one, we give him the honor that is rightly due his name. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, the glory that is rightly due the name of the Lord. Indeed, the honor he rightly deserves is proven in verse eight. How? Bring an offering and come into his courts. Very interesting. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul makes it clear that one aspect of the offering that we now bring in light of what God has done for us in Christ is our body. Based upon the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as an offering. But then in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, the Bible says that another way that we honor God with our offering in this day and age is by bringing the nations to him. So we honor God by giving him our bodies as an offering, but we also honor him by bringing the nations before him as an offering as well. So we give him honor and we prove it by bringing an offering as we come into his court. But secondly, not only do we acknowledge him by giving him honor, we acknowledge him by acknowledging and recognizing his holiness. Verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him all the earth. In other words, we and the earth rightly tremble before such a God because he is holy and he is righteous and he is set apart from sin. And again, I would argue Jim Elliott was gripped by this truth. You see it so clearly again in the prayers that he prays and in the things he writes in his journal. Let's just take a peek for a moment again. November the 6th, 1948. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. September of that same year, to worship in truth is not sufficient. That is to worship in true form. There must be exercise of the spirit. Now listen how he speaks. The new man must be stirred to action. We must have spiritual worship. Philippians 3.3 mentions emotional worship, rejoicing in soul as well as in exercising of spirit. Paul has spoken of rejoicing in the gospel's furtherance in 118 and the sending of Epaphroditus in 225. But now he says, finally rejoice in the Lord, not in fellowship or in privileges, but in the Lord. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 4 and then Romans 12, 1 and 2. Jim picks up on it as well. Gives us rational worship. What? Involving the presentation of our bodies. Yea, Lord, make me a true worshiper. September 20th, Second Chronicles 20. I cannot explain the yearnings of my heart this morning. Cannot bring myself to study or to pray for any length of time. Oh, what a jumble of cross-currented passions I am. A heart so deceitful, it deceived itself. 
But may Christ satisfy my thirst. May the river rock pour out himself to me in this desert place. Nothing satisfies, not nature or fellowship with any, but only my eternal lover. Ah, how cold my heart is toward him, but our eyes are upon thee. And then he gets very personal. And if you don't read this in the light of his entire uh, life, you'll misunderstand what he's saying because he's not saying that God is not happy to give a man a wife. But he is saying that you don't allow your wife to ever become an idol. You don't allow your husband to become the ultimate uh, object of your affection. So listen to what he writes. The possibility of seeing Betty again brings back wistful thoughts. And Betty again is Elizabeth, whom he would eventually marry. And they would serve together in Ecuador and have one child together by the name of Valerie. And then he writes, how I hate myself for such weakness. Is not Christ enough, Jim? What needs you more, a woman in his place? Nay, God forbid. I shall have thee, Lord Jesus. Thou didst buy me, now I must buy thee. Thou knowest how reluctant I am to pay because I do not value you sufficiently. I am thine at terrible cost to thyself. Now thou must become mine, as thou didst not attend to the price, neither would I. August 16, 1954, just a little more than a year before he would die. Because, O God, from thee comes all, because from thine own mouth has entered us the power to breathe, from thee the sea of air in which we swim, and the unknown nothingness that stays it over us with unseen bonds, because thou gavest us from heart of love so tender, mind so wise, and hand so strong salvation, because thou art beginning, God, I worship thee. Because thou art the end of every way, the goal of man, because to thee shall come of every people respect and praise, their emissaries find their throne, their destiny, because Ethiopia shall stretch out her hands to thee, babes sing thy praise, because thine altar gives to sparrows shelter, sinners peace, and devils fury, because to thee all flesh comes, because thou art omega, praise. And then I love this paragraph. Because thou sure art set to justify that son of thine and wilt in time make known just who he is and soon will send him back to show himself. Because the name of Jesus has been laughingly nailed upon a cross and is just now on earth held very lightly and thou will bring that name to light. Because, O God of righteousness, thou wilt do right by my Lord Jesus Christ, I worship thee, and God desires that the nations indeed will worship. Number four, God desires that the nations would enjoy him, verses 10 through 13. John Piper loves to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, God wants us, he wants the nations to enjoy him. Now, we could spend eternity talking about all the ways in which we should enjoy our God, but Psalm 96 highlights two of them for us. Number one, 
We enjoy him because he is a sovereign king. Look at what he says in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And how is it that he reigns? Well, he reigns first of all because he established the earth. He made it. The earth is fully and firmly established. Secondly, he maintains it. It shall not be moved as we used to sing as little children in Sunday school. He does have the whole world in his hands. Verse 10 also affirms that he will judge the people righteously. Yes, the world is established. It will never be moved and he will judge the people with equity. In other words, at the judgment, no one will point a finger at our God and say, well, you did me wrong. No one will point a finger at our God and say, you weren't fair. The idea is this God cannot be bribed. This God plays no favorites in judging the nation. You can always count on him to do the right thing. So in light of that, look at the five different areas in which he is praised in verse 11 and verse 12. Let number one, the heavens be glad. And number two, let the earth rejoice. And number three, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Number four, let the field exult and everything in it. And number five, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. So he brings all of nature together in worshiping this God because he is a sovereign king. But then finally, we also enjoy him because he is a righteous king. Verse 13 ends the psalm on what is clearly an eschatological note. It's a note of hope for those who love and enjoy him. It's a note of warning for those who reject his rightful lordship. Verse 13, he just simply says, for the Lord, he comes, he's coming, and he's coming to what? Judge the earth. And how will he judge the earth? Well, he will do so in a twofold manner. He will judge the world in righteousness, and he will also judge the peoples in faithfulness. You say, what does that look like? It looks like Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with it. He should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Let me move to begin to wrap this all up. Jim Elliott wrote in a letter to his family, remember you are immortal until your work is done. By the way, another missionary by the name of Lottie Moon wrote the same thing in one of her letters. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. He then adds, they simply must hear. The last time that Elizabeth Elliot saw Jim, he was in their home in Ecuador preparing to take flight to where the Akas were that they had been ministering among. 
And as he was packing up and about to walk out the door, Elizabeth looked at him and she said, Jim, you know how violent they are. Uh, You know how dangerous they are, that they are known for their treachery. If the Akas attack, will you and the others use your guns? Most folks do not realize, but they were armed when they went to meet the Akas. And Jim Elliott looked at his wife, Elizabeth, and he simply said, no, we will not use our guns if they attack. She then asked him why. And he made a very famous statement. Because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. And so on January the 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint waited hopefully for another meeting with the Aka or Wadani Indians having made contact with several friendly encounters in previous days. However, this day would not go like that. A group of 10 Wadani men attacked the five missionaries and brutally murdered every one of them. Jim Elliott's mutilated body was found downstream in the river. There was no funeral. There is no tombstone for a memorial. On Resurrection Day, the glorified bodies of these champions for Jesus, they will rise but they will rise from the dirt of Ecuador. Jim Elliott left behind his wife Elizabeth and a baby girl named Valerie. They had only been married less than three years. On January the 30th, 1956, Life magazine published a 10-page article on the martyrdom of these men entitled, Go Ye and Preach the Gospel. Five devout missionaries in remote Ecuador follow this precept and are killed. one of my most prized possessions. Someone several years ago tracked this down and gave this to me as a gift. This is that edition, January the 30th, 1956. And up in the corner, Missionaries, Jungle, Martyrdom, Diaries and Exclusive Photos, and a 10-page story talking about they're giving their life for the cause of Christ. You could not even imagine that anybody would write such an article today, can you? Our nation was shocked. Christians all over the world wept. And yet if Jim Elliott were to know all of this, he would have been embarrassed because in a letter that he wrote to his parents when he was only 21 years old, he said, and I quote one of my favorite statements that he made, missionaries are very human folks, just doing what they are asked, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. In a letter to his mother dated August the 16th, 1948, he would write these words, Oh, what a privilege to be made a minister of the things of the happy God. I only hope that he will let me preach to those who have never heard that name Jesus. What else is worthwhile in this life? I have heard nothing better. Lord, send me. Finally, in his final note to his wife, Elizabeth, dated January the 4th, found on the river beach where he died, these words, our hopes are up, but no signs of the neighbors yet. Perhaps today is the day the Akas will be reached. We are going down now, pistols, gifts, novelties in our pockets, 
prayers in our hearts. That's all for now. Your lover, Jim. Jim Elliott's journal entry of October the 28th, 1949 is very, very famous. You will recognize it immediately when I read it in just a moment. And yet, if you do not read it in its context, you will miss the full import and impact that was intended. So listen to what he wrote. Enjoyed much sweetness in the reading of the last months of Brainerd's life, talking about the missionary David Brainerd, who died at 29. How constant are his thoughts to my own regarding the true and false religion of this late day. I saw in reading him the value of these notations and was much encouraged, listen, to think of a life of godliness in the light of an early death. I have prayed for new men, fiery, reckless men, possessed of uncontrollably youthful passion, these lit by the Spirit of God. I have prayed for new words, explosive, direct, simple words. I have prayed for new miracles, explaining old miracles will not do. If God is to be known as the God who does wonders in heaven and on earth, then God must produce for this generation. Lord, fill preachers and preaching with thy power. How long will we go without tears, without moral passions, hatred, and love? Not long, I pray, Lord Jesus. Not long, and then here it is. One of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven on earth. Ephesians truth. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Time Magazine recorded Jim Elliott's motto for life, our orders are the gospel to every creature. And because he believed this, he said, and I close, nothing is too good to be, so believe, believe to see. In my own experience, I have found that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. And I believe that nothing could be better. And that is not to say that I do not want other things and other ways of living and other places to see, but in my right mind, I know that my hopes and plans for myself could not be any better than he has arranged and fulfilled them. Thus may we all find it and know the truth of the word which says, he will be our God even unto death. Jim Elliott didn't indeed give up that which he could not keep to gain that which he could not lose. The question I want to close with tonight is, will I? Will you? Will you trust the Lord no matter what, even if it means dying for his gospel? My prayer tonight, dear Lord, by your grace and for your glory, give us more Jim Elliot's. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have walked through your word tonight, and we've also used one of your great uh, champions to, to just remind us of what a Psalm 96 life looks like. And Lord, I thank you that though his life was all too brief, few people have impacted the 
world for the cause of Christ and the gospel among the nations than Jim Elliot. It is true, Lord, we do not have to have a long life to have a meaningful life. We simply need to have a life of quality, a life that really is devoted and committed to something. And Lord, I do believe that Jim Elliot was right. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's just another way of saying for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so, Lord, might we indeed be willing to die for Christ, knowing that there is great gain on the other side, not just for us, but for those that we sacrifice for to get the gospel to. Lord, there's still more than 6,500 unreached people groups. There's still almost 3.1 billion people that have either no access or limited access to the gospel. Father, I know that matters to you, and therefore it should matter to us. So, Lord, may we let this text take root in our souls, and may we draw strength and inspiration and encouragement from your servant, Jim Elliott that we might follow in his footsteps and give our life to something that really matters for now and all of eternity. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.